God's love for sinful humans does not reduce to a love that is formless and permissive. Indeed, the thrice holy God stands in judgment over sinful humanity, but he also stands ready to remit the sins of everyone who repents. What a God. Welcome to Christ Overall, a podcast dedicated to helping the church see Christ as Lord and everything else under his feet. My name is David Schrock, and today I have the pleasure of introducing Ardell Cannaday and his long form, The True Nature of Love, God's and Ours. If you've been keeping up with Christ Overall, you know that Ardell has been providing a rich supply of biblical and theological content for us, and this long form is no different. Broken up in two pieces on our website, Ardell addresses the false ways that love is employed in our world. This is seen most clearly in his concise introduction. But instead of simply pointing out the errors of the world, he offers a rich biblical meditation on what Scripture says about God's love and ours, and hence the title. In this larger biblical theological section, Ardell draws on the manifold ways that Scripture speaks of God's love. In particular, he cites the difficult doctrine of the love of God, a slim but rather sublime volume written by D.A. Carson. If you're unfamiliar with Carson's book, Crossway is offering it free as a PDF through the Christ Overall website. I'd encourage you to download that and to take a look. Additionally, this month on our website, we will offer a host of articles and resources on the subject of rightly defining love and wisely loving our neighbors. Some of these articles will address the lovelessness of vaccine mandates, the pseudo-love of pronoun hospitality, and the pure hatred for God and his image that is espoused in things like genital mutilation, which goes by the name of gender reassignment surgery. In short, our month will be hard-hitting, but that is only because the hatred of the evil one is hitting hard. In our day, Christians need to know and love the love of God. And to that end, we begin our podcast this month with Ardell Cannaday and his long form, the true nature of love, God's and ours. The true nature of love, God's and ours. A long-form essay for Christ Overall, written by Ardell Cannaday and read by Kevin McClure. Proponents of the sexual revolution of the 1960s fastened onto Freudian psychoanalysist Wilhelm Reich's designation, quote-unquote, free love. Reich reasoned that sexual liberation would destroy the morality inherent to capitalism. Others, especially Herbert Marcuse, embraced the notion and capitalized on it in his book, Eros and Civilization, a Philosophical Inquiry into Freud. As the sexual revolution's new intellectual, he coined the slogan, make love, not war. Free love practitioners engaged in casual sex without commitments, reflecting the contemporary expression, friends with benefits. Love, lacking self-governance, a moral compass and boundaries, became eroticized. This only led to bondage, enslaving and ruining individuals, families, churches, governments, and whole societies. We witness today the tragic and predictable collapse of the American society that has reached every level of our culture. Free love is a euphemism for morally unrestrained conduct, and it takes root and flourishes wherever belief in the fullness of God's character revealed in Scripture is compromised. Where theological mischief occurs, 
there you will find behavioral mischief. When God's love is preached and believed apart from his holiness and justice, the erasure of moral boundaries invariably follows. When people imagine that God bestows his love without moral commands, sin-corrupted reasoning justifies their immoral conduct. Distorted notions concerning God always lead to distorted human behavior. Free love does not acknowledge any external morality as it ignores boundaries of right and wrong. It is covetous, self-absorbed, impulsive, heedless, and amorphous. Unlike free love, true love patterns itself after God's love. It embraces what his character establishes as right versus wrong and is self-giving, others-oriented, unchanging, kind, and structured. It's fitting for this essay to feature two parts. One, a short accounting of our society's spurning of God and its abandonment of the true nature of love for others. And two, a consideration of God's love and our Christian role in calling our society to repentance concerning love for others. Government-sponsored erotic love. Since the 1960s, free love's calculated evisceration of public and private morality has taken its long march through institutions, ensconcing itself in the Clinton White House and attaining critical mass with presidential candidate Barack Obama, who declared, quote, change will not come if we wait for some other person or if we wait for some other time. We are the ones we've been waiting for, end quote. Five days before the election of 2008, he announced his mission, quote, We are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America, end quote. At first, he and Vice President Joe Biden feigned opposition to same-sex so-called marriage. Yet transformation of America began in earnest near the end of President Obama's first term. On May 6, 2012, Vice President Biden went rogue, strongly endorsing so-called gay marriage on NBC's Meet the Press. On May 9th, 2012, Obama, in an interview on ABC News, said, quote, I think same-sex couples should be able to get married, end quote. That evening, rainbow colors bedecked the White House. Peter Jones of Truth Exchanged aptly wondered in an article that he titled, May 9th, 2012, The Official End of Christendom? He wondered this, quote, May 9th, 2012 was indeed an historic moment. Though President Obama bathed his decision on Christian principles, he said, quote, Our faith is not only Christ sacrificing himself on our behalf, but it's also the golden rule. Treat others the way you'd want to be treated, end quote. Peter then went on and said, For the first time ever, a sitting U.S. president considered the most powerful political leader in the world has endorsed a marital arrangement that formally constitutes the pagan worship of the creation rather than worship of the creator from Romans 125, end quote. From that tragic day, the slouching towards Gomorrah has only intensified. On June 26, 2015, the Supreme Court issued the Obergefell versus Hodges decision and claimed, quote, unquote, same-sex marriage is now the law of the land. On December 13th, 2022, President Joe Biden signed the so-called Respect for Marriage Act to codify same-sex marriage, 
he celebrated by declaring, quote, Today is a good day, a day America takes a vital step toward equality, for liberty and justice, not just for some, but for everyone, everyone, toward creating a nation where decency, dignity, and love are recognized, honored, and protected, end quote. On December 13th, 2022, and yet another God-mocking exhibition, the Biden administration set the White House aglow with rainbow colors. The President of the United States has degraded marriage and love by engaging in definitional obfuscation. Love is love. Biden decreed, quote, marriage, I mean this with all my heart, marriage is a simple proposition. Who do you love? And will you be loyal with that person you love? It's not more complicated than that, end quote. Thus, love is used to justify all kinds of evil behavior, especially erotic and defiling conduct. Erotic free love aided and abetted by professing Christians. It is unsurprising that love may be the most talked about, promoted, misunderstood, and twisted character trait of God and humans. Incorrectly defining love may be the widest gateway to worshiping a false god. Much like unbelievers, influenced by the culture more than by scriptures, many who profess faith in Christ Jesus simplistically misconstrue divine and human love as if love and hate were opposites. Misconstruing God's love begins by misapprehending human love and then projecting that defective notion onto God. To ascribe our character qualities to God as if we were the model after which God is patterned is idolatry. Such reasoning inverts reality by fashioning a God after our human likeness. Thus, John Calvin rightly observes, quote, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols, end quote. A few lines later, he adds, quote, man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity as it sluggishly plods, indeed is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance, it conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God, end quote. God's love is the measure of human love. Because the creator fashioned us after his likeness, God gives us his qualities, including his moral attributes, but all with creaturely limitations now corrupted by sin. All these qualities and attributes God gives us are analogical to his, not identical. The creator's character and ours do not differ in mere quantity. Rather, there is a qualitative difference in God's character and our own. God is holy. God is good. God is love. He is righteous. God is just. We would be wrong to say that God is simply more holy or more good or more loving than we are in each of these attributes. God is qualitatively different from us. These qualities belonging to God are what Christian theologians describe as, quote unquote, communicable attributes, transmittable to us, his image bearers, to reflect the attributes of our creator. Every quality and every moral attribute that constitutes us creatures after God's likeness is, by definition, 
analogical, not identical to his moral attributes. God's redeeming work is restoring the full array of God's likeness in us. This God-likeness is what we properly call godliness. So when we consider love, whether a human or divine attribute, we must always do so in correlation with God's full character, especially his holiness and goodness, and never isolated from these attributes. Also, we must first ponder God's love as integral to his moral perfections and then consider the exercise of his love in deeds and actions. In his classic Knowing God, J.I. Packer correctly argues that while Scripture twice affirms that God is love in 1 John 4, 8 and 4, 16, this affirmation is regularly misunderstood and distorted. Distortions occur primarily because people isolate God's love from his other attributes, especially his holiness, his justice, and his self-sufficiency. Sin-corrupted reasoning also has a proclivity to project onto God creaturely qualities, limitations, and emotions. Thus, many conceive of God only as a more perfect human. Thus, Christians must rigorously avoid distortions when we speak of God's love and our love, which must imitate His. To help us in that endeavor, we turn to D.A. Carson's little book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Published in 2000, Carson's slim volume punches above its weight class as it guides believers to represent accurately God's love and thus ours. As Carson shows, the scriptures portray God's love in diverse yet complementary ways. True, God is love, but to grasp the breadth and depth of this statement, scripture portrays God's love with varying forms concerning how he relates to his creation. This should not be a difficult concept to apprehend because our creaturely love consists of different facets also. Varied forms of God's love. Carson proposes that God's word depicts God's love as having five discernible forms. I offer a short summary here followed by a further development below. One, the unique love that the father has for the son and the love that the son has for the father. We see this in John 3.35, 5.20, and 14.31. Two, God exercises a providential love for his whole creation. This love is often called God's common grace. God, who is pleased with what he created, we see this in Genesis 1.31, bestows kind provisions and care over all creation, with animals in Job 39 and Matthew 10, 29, and with humans in Matthew 10, 31, Acts 14, 14 through 18, 17, 24 through 29. Three, God manifests his love in his redeeming posture toward his fallen world corrupted by sin and now dwelling under his curse. We see this in Ezekiel 33, 11 and John 3, 16. Four, God's love obligates reciprocation. Thus, his redeeming love for us is conditioned on obedience. Five, when scripture affirms that God first loved us, it means that God set his love upon 
not every human without exception, but only upon those whom he calls his quote-unquote elect ones, i.e. Israel, church, individuals. We see this in Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, 10, 14 through 15, Malachi 1, 2 through 3, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 and 5:25, and 1 John 4, 8 through 10. That God first loved us obligates a response in kind, just as scripture affirms, we love because God first loved us. We see this in 1 John 4, 19. God's unconditional electing love establishes his covenantal relationship with us, which stipulates conditions concerning how his people are to come to him. God requires our belief, our obedience, and our steadfast faithfulness. Carson rightly insists that scripture refuses to allow us to treat any of these aspects as absolute. Instead, scripture presents them as complementary, holding them together in proper proportion. This obligates us to apply these truths thoughtfully and carefully to ourselves and our relationships. For example, God's perfect intra-Trinitarian love is distinctive. It differs from how the Trinity relates lovingly toward the whole of creation, including towards humans. Our focus in what follows will be on the latter four forms of God's love that Carson identifies. God's caring love for creation. When we consider God's loving care toward his creation, called divine providence, we must account for the universal presence of God's curse. God's providence does not nullify God's imposed frustration upon his created order, nor does his curse invalidate his loving care for creation. Frustration and the bondage of decay characterize God's created order in this present evil age. Their presence accounts for God's new creative activity through Jesus Christ, progressing inexorably towards creation's liberation from its bondage and decay, which is tied inextricably to the glorious redemption of God's children, descendants of Adam who rebelled. You see this in Romans 8, 18 through 21. Thus, temporary though they are, alive today, but devoured by animals or flames tomorrow, God adorns the lilies and grasses of the field with glorious vestments. Likewise, God feeds the animals that roam the forests and meadows, and he cares even for the raven's hatchlings. We see this in Psalm 147, 9, and Job 38, 41, Matthew 6, 26, and Luke 12, 24. Lions roar as they stalk their prey, devouring the flesh of other creatures that the Lord has given to them. We see this in Psalm 104, 21. All this comes from God's loving providence, so that even when animals, including a sparrow, fall to the ground to become food for other creatures and insects, they do so only by God ordaining it. Matthew 10, 29 through 31. God's loving care for humans, three forms. If God's providential love for his animals tends to the minutest of details, how much grander is his providential care for humans he made after his own likeness? Yet, 
When we ponder scripture's portrayal of God's love towards us who bear his image, we must acknowledge that God's love toward humans entails three different but wholly integrated forms, forms of affection reflected in our love for God and for others. First, God holds a loving posture toward fallen humanity. John 3.16 succinctly expresses this. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Here, the world entails the entirety of morally corrupted humanity. Regularly, many who quote the verse, including Bible translators, mistakenly presume that the phrase God so loved portrays the magnitude of God's love. It's true that other portions of scripture do portray the vastness of God's love, but the adverb so in John 3.16 does not speak of magnitude as in so much, but of manner, how, or in what way. Thus, the verse does not say, God loved the people of the world so much that he gave his only son, like the CEV states. Instead, the verse announces, quote, God loved the world in this way, namely, that he gave his only son, end quote. What is the way God shows his love toward the world of sinful humans? Well, the verse explains, he gave his only son. God's love displayed in the crucifixion of his son beckons and stipulates a reciprocal response of love expressed this way, quote, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, end quote. God's love for sinful humans does not reduce to a love that is formless and permissive. Indeed, the thrice holy God stands in judgment over sinful humanity, but he also stands ready to remit the sins of everyone who repents. What a God. God sent his son into a world hostile against him so that wicked humans would indict his righteous son, condemn him to death, and execute him. They did not realize that they were carrying out God's very purpose and design by which he would redeem everyone who heeds his gospel's command to acknowledge his risen son as the only savior of the world in accordance with John 4.42. To the rebellious world, God's message is clear from Ezekiel 33.11. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Second, the display of God's love by giving his son calls for the response of belief. Quote, that whoever believes in him, that is in Jesus, should not perish, but have eternal life. End quote. The gospel presents God's love revealed in Christ Jesus as the only realm within which we can receive God's saving deliverance from his wrath. How we initially come to Christ Jesus to receive eternal life in him is how we remain in Christ Jesus and the life he offers unto the end. Love for God 
for his son and for his children is essential to God's relational covenant structure. Obeying God's commands is necessary. Thus, the Lord Jesus instructs his disciples in John 15, 9 through 10, saying, quote, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. End quote. The gospel requires us to affirm that love for God, for his Son, and for our fellow believers is both how we persevere in Christ Jesus to receive eternal life on the last day, and also evidence that we already have eternal life because we belong to Christ Jesus. As it says in 1 John 4, 7 through 10, quote, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, end quote. The necessity of love for God prompts Jude to administer his urgent appeal in Jude 21. Keep yourselves in God's love. God's love toward us, therefore, takes this second form that God fully integrates with his other two forms of redeeming love. The numerous and frequent appeals for us to love God, his son, and all God's children are grounded in God's loving act of giving his own son on our behalf to avert his wrath against us. We see in 1 John 2, 2. Thus, as I'll show next, without any contradiction, the gospel's numerous commands and exhortations to believe, to obey, and to keep ourselves in God's love are grounded in God's electing love. Unless God loved us first, we would never come to love him. As we've already heard in 1 John 4, 19, we love because God first loved us. Third, therefore, the context in which John 3.16 is located makes it clear that God's love revealed in Christ Jesus is welcomed by some and rejected by others. Why? All who believe receive eternal life. But everyone who does not heed the gospel's call to believe in God's only son for redemption already stand condemned to eternal perdition, according to John 3.18. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God's anger persists on the disobedient. Thus, D.A. Carson correctly observes the cliche, quote, God hates the sin but loves the sinner, end quote, is actually false on the face of it and should be abandoned. Repeatedly, 
The scriptures affirm that God hates evildoers and abhors deceivers. See this in Psalm 5, 5 and Psalm 11, 5. The gospel announces this verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Evildoers despise the light and refuse to enter it, lest the light expose their deeds as evil. You see this in John 3, 19 through 20. So God's wrath continues on them. On the other hand, see in John 3, 21, quote, the one who practices the truth comes to the light that it may be obvious that his deeds have been done in God, end quote. From this, it is evident that what distinguishes us who believe from those who persist in evil doing is outside ourselves. What causes us to believe in God's Son while others reject Him persistently? John's Gospel accounts for the difference in several places. John's prologue expresses the difference in John 1, 11 through 13, when it says, quote, He came to His own, this is Jesus, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. End quote. This emphatically affirms that being born to be God's children is not the same as being born into a human family. This new birth is not a matter of bloodline, intercourse, or a husband's intention. Instead, this birth comes about solely by God an affirmation that anticipates Jesus' announcement in John 3, 6, quote, Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit, end quote. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus reiterates this several times, expressing it most strongly in chapter 6. Some of Jesus' disciples take offense when he says, quote, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. End quote. Then Jesus responds a little bit later in John 6, 63 through 65, with the words, quote, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. End quote. Later, when some Jews take offense at Jesus and his words, he tells them in John 8, 47, quote, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God, end quote. Again, some Jews become annoyed with Jesus and ask in 1024, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus responds in John 10, 25 through 31. He says, quote, I told you and you do not believe. The works I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, 
and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. End quote. Believers in Christ Jesus happily submit to God's choosing love that John's gospel portrays in all these passages and in which he succinctly expresses in 1 John 4, 19. We love because God first loved us. We believe the good news because God's spirit has made us alive in Christ. We hear God's words because God has enabled us to hear. We listen to the voice of the shepherd because God has made us his sheep. The apostle John says, God first loved us. And the apostle Paul affirms in Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, quote, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, end quote. Thus, Christians joyfully worship the Lord God by singing hymns that affirm God's electing love, without which they would never repent of their sins and set their affections upon God. They sing hymns like this from John Condor, who lived from 1789 to 1855. Quote, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for that could never be. This heart would still refuse thee, had thou not chosen me. Thou from the sin that stained me hast cleansed and set me free. Of old thou hast ordained me, that I should live to thee." End quote. Many Christians reverse how Scripture portrays God's love. They claim that God's electing love is conditional, conditioned on belief, and that his covenantal relational love is unconditional, is a no required conduct. Against this, the gospel of Jesus Christ compels us to uphold two compatible affirmations. One, we receive God's covenantal relational love conditionally by obeying God's commandments. And two, God sets his electing love upon us unconditionally. Our believing in Jesus Christ is the effect, not the cause of God's first loving us. Say that one more time. The gospel of Jesus Christ compels us to uphold two compatible affirmations. One, we receive God's covenant relational love conditionally by obeying God's commandments. And two, God sets his electing love upon us unconditionally. Our believing in Jesus Christ is the effect, not the cause of God's first loving us. We receive assurance that we are God's beloved children, not by reasoning from his electing love, but from our lovingly obeying the gospel. Thus, as we read in 1 John 2, 4 through 6, quote, the one who claims, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. 
and the truth is not in this one. But whoever keeps his word, truly in this one, love for God is brought to completion. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who claims to persevere in him, he is also obligated to walk in the same way as that one walked, end quote. Walk, not talk, is how we know we are in Christ Jesus. The knowledge that God chose us in Christ comes to us only by keeping ourselves in God's love. Our love, however imperfect, imitates God's love. Free love's calculated evisceration of morality, public and private, is so rampant that our Lord's description of the antediluvian society seems to fit our own in Genesis 6-5, quote, The wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, end quote. Nevertheless, because the Creator formed us after his likeness, he imparted attributes constituting us as his image bearers. Our fallenness distorts God's implanted image, but our inborn knowledge of God is irrepressible. See this in Romans 1, 19 through 20. Knowledge of God restrains human wickedness. If it were not so, wanton murder would utterly expunge humanity. Thus, sin's perversion of love does not thoroughly eradicate compassion. Solomon's shrewdness exposed which of the two prostitutes was the true mother of the disputed and living infant in 1 Kings 3, 16-28. Though both women were immoral, neither could entirely eradicate God's implanted sense of divinity or sensus divinitatis, knowing right from wrong or the capacity for love. Thus, Isaiah 49.15 rebukes us, quote, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will never forget you. End quote. Sexually immoral males and females who practice, quote-unquote, free love have an innate penchant to demand monogamy from their sexual partners, including those engaged in same-sex relationships. Twisted though it is, this implanted expectation of fidelity, when violated, becomes a provocation for suspicion, jealousy, bitterness, contempt, and in some cases, even murder. Only the good news, as it is in Jesus Christ, reorders our beliefs and conduct in harmony with God's love. God's Spirit governs our hearts and behavior in keeping with the Holy Scriptures to imitate God's communicable attributes, including love. As God unconditionally set His love upon us, we set our love upon one individual of the opposite sex and pledge sacrosanct covenant fidelity to one another. At the same time, we recognize that love for one another must be nurtured daily with kindness, tender affection, and admonition when necessary. Without this, love withers, threatening the covenant of fidelity. Similarly, when the marital union gives birth to offspring, 
parents affirm an innate and inviolable love for their children. This immutable love is properly capable of showing wrath when children are disobedient. It's necessary to remind children that love prompts both punishment and commendation in order to instruct them that parental love, like God's love, takes on varying forms. God's sense of right and wrong implanted within children instills an intuitive expectation of obedience and not permissive leniency. Failure to punish disobedience breeds ungodly behavior, delinquency in children and explosive rage in parents when they continue to disobey. Indeed, we might take it one step further and say that when a father fails to love and discipline his children, or when a husband betrays his first love by pursuing adultery, he's not simply failing some earthly standard of utilitarian morality. Rather, as David could say to God in Psalm 51.4, against you, you only, have I sinned. Truly, such is the nature of human love. It is oriented towards the holy God of perfect love. And thus, in all discussions of love, we must begin with God, not man. And more, we must come to understand the manifold nature of his love, so that as Paul says in Ephesians 5.1, we would be, quote, imitators of God as beloved children, end quote. Despite all the free love in our world today, we must not look to the rainbow-colored White House or the trite slogans of love is love to find true love. Instead, we must keep our eyes on the Lord and on His Word. We must imitate God's love in the way He has revealed. As Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 5-2, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, end quote. Only by a right understanding of the cross can we truly love God and love others. And to that end, we must labor as long as we are on this earth. <laughs>